Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we've reached the final few episodes of the Clinical Reasoning series, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey up to this point. This series and the podcast is made possible by all the support via Patreon. And as ever, a huge thank you to those of you supporting the show and to those listening and sharing the podcast with your friends, colleagues and students. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon, the link is in the show notes. So on this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Eleanor Rocker and Dr. Saul Perez-Gonzalez about how evidence of biological mechanisms can support our clinical reasoning. Eleanor is an associate professor at Oslo Metropolitan University and specialises in issues related to knowledge-based decision-making with a focus on risk and safety of medicines, both from a practical methodological and philosophical perspective. Her work spans across different areas including scientific evidence, practice, policy and philosophy. Eleanor is part of the Course Health team and we spoke several times on the Course Health series on probability, medical uniqueness, causal dispositionalism and philosophy for practice and I've linked these episodes in the show notes. Saul was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for Logic, Language and Cognition in the Department of Philosophy and Educational Sciences at the University of Turin in Italy. He has a background in philosophy with a PhD in philosophy and MA in contemporary philosophical thought and he's currently working and is a member of the PRIN Research Project titled From Models to Decisions and that's funded by the Italian Ministry of University and Research. And Saul has had several visiting researcher positions at Durham University in the UK and the Centre for Philosophy of Social Science at the University of Helsinki. And so in this episode, we speak around a paper that Saul and Eleanor wrote together titled Evidence of Biological Mechanisms in Health Predictions An Insight into Clinical Reasoning. And that was published in the journal Perspectives in Biology and Medicine, and I've linked the paper in the show notes. So in this episode, we speak about what is meant by the term mechanisms and their constituent parts. We talk about how evidence of mechanisms is typically undervalued in the epistemological and methodological hierarchies of evidence-based medicine. And we talk about how evidence of mechanisms can be useful to our clinical reasoning by helping us make predictions around safety and efficacy of treatment interventions for individual patients. And we talk about the potential dangers of relying on mechanistic knowledge in replacement of knowledge about effectiveness, such as knowledge generated from clinical trials. And we talk about how evidence of mechanisms can take any form of study design, from lab-based animal studies to understand the biological mechanisms at play, to qualitative studies to understand the mechanisms involved in the social world. So this was yet another enlightening conversation, and quite distinct from the previous episodes of the series. As such, it adds to rounding and deepening the view of clinical reasoning that this series seeks to offer. So I bring you Dr. Eleanor Rocker and Dr. Saul Perez-Gonzalez. Eleanor, Saul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Oliver. Nice to be here. Thank you for having us. So Eleanor, you and I spoke during the Course Health series, I think last year. We did, yes. And we spoke about causation, probability, some of the most fundamental yet challenging conversations I've had on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to exploring the topic of mechanisms or mechanistic reasoning with you and Saul. Yes, I am too, Oliver. It has been very fun with the Cosel series, so we hope we repeat it. 
And so we're going to talk about, I suppose, talk in and around a paper that came out quite recently, right, in the journal Perspectives in Biology and Medicine. Yes. And the paper was titled Evidence of Biological Mechanisms in Health Predictions and Insight into Clinical Reasoning. The, the title really grabbed me to try and link biological mechanisms with clinical reasoning right during the time when I'm recording a clinical reasoning series. It seemed like fate, at least. So I'm looking forward to, to diving into that. But before we do, perhaps you could each introduce yourself, your current academic background, the, the sort of work that you're doing. Do you want to start, Saul? Sure. Uh, thank you, Lena. So I am now a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Logic, Language and Cognition of the University of Turin in Italy. I'm working in the research project from models to decisions, which is funded by the Italian Ministry of Universities and Research. And my background is in philosophy and philosophy of science. I obtained a PhD in philosophy from the University of Valencia a couple of years ago. I also hold a BA and MA in philosophy from this university, the University of Valencia in, in Spain. And my main areas of interest are philosophy of science, philosophy of the social sciences, and of course, philosophy of the biomedical sciences. And my current work focuses on the new mechanical approaches and their relevance in medicine, in social science, and also in policymaking. Great, Elena. Yes, I am. I have a background in uh, pharmacy, but I am uh, very interested and I have been working a lot with philosophy of science. I have been uh, leading together with Anium the Co-Health Project, which uh, looks at causality, complexity and evidence in the health sciences. And what I'm interested in is uh, how we make decisions that are uh, knowledge-based and there, I think about health decisions mainly because, I mean, I have a background in health sciences. So my main interest then is the relationship between general knowledge and the specific knowledge, I would say. And at the moment, I am um, working as an associate professor in pharmacy in Oslo. I am Norway-based. So I suppose we're going to somehow focus on or land on biological mechanisms. We may expand beyond biological and biology. But if we start with the idea of mechanisms and what that term is loaded with, when I think about mechanisms, I think about how things work and how things exert some kind of effect. So maybe if we just set the scene and and one of, one of you or both of you introduce this notion of mechanism as you've used it in the paper and how it's used in philosophy and whether the philosophical term carries the same meaning as I just gave around how things work? Yeah, I think that the best to answer this question would be uh, Saul, since, uh, you know, it can be a philosophical loaded question, what is uh, a mechanism? So, Saul, do you want to answer to that? Yes, sure. Thank you. I'm not sure if I am the best one, but I will I will do my best. You're certainly the best of the three of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not completely sure about this, but I, I will try. So the, uh, like 30 years ago, the new mechanical philosophy became a, a very important movement in philosophy of science. And since the emergency of this movement, several diverse uh, characterizations of mechanism have been developed. And this was actually one of the main uh, topics at the beginning of, of the movement. What is a mechanism? What are the components of a mechanism, etc.? And it is still an open question. There are still papers discussing the nature of, of mechanisms, this uh, ontological aspect of the debate. Uh, nonetheless, in the last years, some consensus has emerged around what we can call minimal characterizations or definitions of minimal, of minimal uh, mechanism. Uh, those characterizations aim to account for mechanisms across the sciences for the diverse things that are considered uh, as mechanisms in social science, biology, physics, etc. And also they want to include those aspects that are present 
in most notions of most characterizations of mechanism. Uh, according to those uh, minimal characterizations, a mechanism for a phenomenon consists of entities or parts whose activities and interactions are organized such to be responsible for the phenomenon. Uh, some aspects such as regularity or functions are out of these minimal characterizations because they are not present in all the mechanisms and they were a bit problematic at the beginning of the movement. One interesting aspect is that mechanisms are nested. It means that a component of a mechanism is usually a mechanism itself. So for instance, a cell may be a component of a mechanism, but it is still a mechanism. So there are mechanisms at different levels. We have a hierarchy of mechanisms. So we can describe a mechanism with more or less detail. And of course, the adequate degree of detail will depend on our aim. And just to illustrate this, uh, this idea of mechanism, an example of a mechanism could be the mechanism by which parental training influences the behavior of an imperactive child. In that case, we have some entities, the parents, the child, etc. We have some activities, they are talking, the training, and we have some organization, for instance, temporal organization. This is an, a mechanism about which uh, evidence of mechanisms could be useful for addressing, for instance, the efficacy of the intervention. And so is the question of what is the mechanism of intervention A, for example, that's a different question as to whether or not intervention A is an effective intervention. So the how something works versus whether something works. And I'm trying to figure out how they're different. They seem to be closely related. Yes, it's, you're right, Oliver. There are two different questions. And previously we have called them surface. I mean, I guess the way to, to see the difference is that knowing that something happens is what you could call superficial or surface causal knowledge. And this kind of knowledge of this type, you could say, is given by epidemiological studies. You know, at least that in a certain percentage of a population, something has happened. But then there is another question which uh, has been called um, deep causal knowledge, which is like how something happened. And uh, this is not something that in the current framework is necessarily pursued all the times, let's say, because uh, a result for epidemiological studies or result from a randomized controlled trial tends to or just gives you information about whether something has happened, but not about how. This is an additional knowledge, which is, you, could, you can say, external to the epidemiological evidence. Although some epidemiological evidence could give you a hint about how something happens. So for instance, if you see that a certain, uh, you have a certain uh, effect only in a very specific uh, type of patient, I don't know, maybe just in uh, very young children, younger than two, then this could give you a kind of hint that there is uh, some kind of mechanism, something happening at uh, earlier stages of development. But this is something that comes that you put into, this is in no way something internal to the epidemiological evidence. This is something that then you have to, to add because it has something to do with the understanding, the explanations. So your position is, is that this knowledge about mechanisms has value to how clinicians are thinking and reasoning in around patients and their and their problems. What's the current situation with mechanistic knowledge? Where does that sit within the current hierarchy hierarchies of quality evidence? And you mentioned the RCTs and they sit around the top. Where does mechanistic knowledge reside in terms of its reliability, its validity? Well, I would say that in many of the pyramids, it's not even included. Is it, Saul? And I, I think it is, it is not included. Maybe it is related with some uh, methods that are at the bottom of the pyramid, but it is not 
explicitly included. Yeah. And here I had I would like to make a specification because the point is that the ranking of evidence that were given by the current uh, evidence-based framework is a ranking of internal validity or reliability. So it is just to tell you how how sure we are that the factor that one factor we are testing is the one that made the difference the statistical difference. So this is everything the ranking uh, of the evidence-based medicine tells us. But then there is all another question, which is how relevant is this for the patient? And this is also a very important question because in the end, when you in the clinical dialogue, in the clinical choice, what makes a good piece of evidence is a mix of uh, reliability and relevance. So it's possible that you have, you know, a very uh, high ranked piece of evidence from the randomized controlled trial, which is very highly ranked in terms of internal validity, but it doesn't tell you much about your patient because a relevant population was excluded, for instance, like patients that have the same condition of your patient were excluded. So in that sense, it's not a good piece of evidence for your patient. And at the contrary, you could have uh, evidence from a case series, which is not ranked very high in terms of internal validity, but it could be really just a piece of evidence you need for your patient. So the problem we have the, with the evidence-based medicine, which does not include evidence of mechanism, but it ranks it really low, is that this is a ranking of internal validity. So it's only the piece of, of the story. So the other part of the story that we need is what about the external validity? And what we're trying to do with our work, Saul and I, we're trying to provide a kind of a, a toolbox or systematic thinking to also guide the thinking about external validity. So what, what is the relevance? What is the relevance? And we're in no way saying that we're giving a ranking. Of course, you cannot rank the relevance because this is something that you have to think case by case, but nevertheless, this is not exempted from systematic and rational thinking. So you could provide some kind of help, guidance for the thinking to the healthcare professional and the patient to evaluate what does this study, this general knowledge have to do with me, patient, specific person. Again, maybe it's just my, my positioning, but when I think of mechanisms, I think of a particular type of study, animals or kind of physiological measuring stuff of people and how like how the neurotransmitters work. But what you're saying is that it's about the purpose. It can be any of those things. It can be rabbits being cut open and poked or some other method. Exactly. What characterizes evidence of mechanisms is the object, but we are considering, we are considering mechanism, not just correlations, but not the method. So case studies, but also population studies, animal models can be useful for obtaining evidence of, of mechanisms. And this is actually related with one of your questions at the beginning of the podcast, and is the place of evidence of mechanisms in hierarchies of evidence. I think that one of the problems for integrating evidence of mechanisms in hierarchies of evidence is that hierarchies of evidence are mainly hierarchies about methods. But evidence of mechanisms is not about methods, it's about objects. So maybe we have to think a bit how to integrate evidence of mechanisms uh, there. Do you want to ex expand on objects? When you say objects, what do you mean? Yes, the, the, the point is that uh, the main distinction in the, at least the more theoretical debate, is between evidence of correlations and evidence of mechanisms. So the distinction between evidence of correlations, for instance, provided by RCTs, and evidence of mechanisms is the object of evidence. In one case, we are just considering correlations between two variables, but in the other case, we are considering how entities and activities lead to certain output. So even if we can obtain, for instance, by means of an RCT, both evidence of mechanisms and evidence of correlations, but the difference is the object of, of the evidence. Hmm. And it might be a good time now just to, to highlight that despite the paper being 
or despite the paper referring to biological mechanisms, for some that would make their hair stand on end around biomedicalism or dualism or reductionism and there's no person, their voice, their values and aspirations within the biology. Maybe just say why I'm wrong or that's wrong or that you can expand this idea beyond just biology. Yes, in the uh, the paper we wrote was a paper about uh, specifically about medicines this time because it was within a specific area that we wanted to you know to contribute but this is in no way restricted to the field of biological mechanisms and uh, medicines because as saul said mechanisms can be understood at many levels so what we say about how to guide use of evidence of mechanisms can be applied to social mechanisms, psychological mechanisms, all sorts of, of situations in, you, in which you have an intervention that somehow influences the patient and the patient's context. So in no way this is, is this restricted to, you know, the neurotransmitters of the patient. I mean, what we say about, uh, you know, medicine, because that paper was about medicine, is valid also for, like, we are referring, that the medicine is just a, a little a specific example, but we're talking about every time we're we're uh, trying to do something, we're trying an intervention to help a patient that could be with a nutritional intervention, with some exercise, with social support, networking, uh, or uh, and so on and so forth. In, any, in all these cases, you could have evidence from, uh, you know, you, you actually are required as a professional to know what was tried, what, what does the evidence tell me in, uh, for example, in, in the studies, it could even be in other patients, in other patients that you've seen before. This is also evidence that is external from your, uh, to your patient, but you are required to think, what does this evidence tell me about this specific case? Mm. I mean, uh, it's, it's valid for any, any intervention. So you can add anything like yeah yes if 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 you want we, I can briefly illustrate those problems related with external validity and also the relevance of mechanisms in fields that are not a biology with a brief example so it's it's a example related with nutritional policies in the eighties in the well, the the Tamil Nadu Integrating Nutrition Project. Uh, well known as TIMP, was conducted in certain areas of Tamil Nadu in India with the support of the World Bank. And the main goal of this project was to improve the nutritional and health status of young children in this area. For achieving this, this objective, a crucial aspect of the intervention was to provide nutritional education and supplementary food to mothers, and actually this intervention was quite successful, and researchers observed a significant improvement in weight for AIDS over the period in those towns in which the intervention was introduced. So in, in this case, let's say that we have internal validity. The intervention is working in the study population. Because of this success in the 90s, uh, the Bangladesh Integrated Nutrition Project, the BIMP, was conducted in Bangladesh and the intervention was quite similar. Nutritional education and supplementary food for the mothers in order to improve the nutritional and health status of children. Nevertheless, the intervention was not effective in this, in this case. So in this case, we don't have external validity. It is not working in the target population. And the, the main reason is that in Tamil Nadu, mothers are in charge of providing food and distributing food in the family. Nonetheless, in Bangladesh, mothers-in-law and husbands are in charge of providing the food and distributing the food. So 
while in the first case it was uh, successful to teach mothers, it was not successful in the in the second case. And this is an example in which evidence of mechanisms could actually be useful because if we take into account the mechanism of action in the intervention, in the first population, we will see that a crucial entity are mothers and they play, they play sorry, a crucial role, but they are not present in the second population. So there is a difference between the mechanisms, mm. in this case, the social mechanisms at work in both populations. So there's something about, so the old adage, who cares how it works as long as it works, is insufficient because knowing how something works helps us refine the intervention or tells us how we can apply that intervention to different populations or why you've got people that respond and don't respond. Yes. And also it tells us something about, because one could think, I mean, how did they not think about checking this? These people were professionals and, uh, you know, why didn't they check how things worked? But, you know, the point is that it's not always easy to understand what you should check. Because now that we have the case, we it seems quite easy. Like, they needed to see, to look at how the family works, etc. But if we, if we think about any case that we don't know about, we don't know how it works, we don't know the mechanism. So we actually don't know what we should check. So in order to know whether, for instance, your population, the population that is included in the study is similar to your patient, let's say. How do you check that? How do you define similar? You know, if you are evaluating a, a nutrition standard, a, a diet for your patient, and this diet worked in a population, in a study population, then you have to check whether the population is similar to your patient. And uh, some would say, okay, just check the parameters. You don't need to understand anything. Just check, you know, whether, you know, your population has the same, you know, your patient has the same age. Uh, of the population, more or less, whether the um, social status, status is the same, whether they have any metabolic illness, something like that. But the point is that you check something that uh, you think has something to do because you know how nutrition works. I mean, you will not check whether uh, your patient has the same number of uh, shoes or the number of, you know, academic papers. <laughs> Why not? It sounds silly. Yeah, but that's because you know uh, how things work in a way. But if you know nothing, then the, the problem is that how do you check the parameters? How do you know how to classify? How do you know that your patient is classified, uh, you know, as, as relevant for the population? This is a problem. This is a problem that you have if you don't have, if you only have that kind of uh, statistic type of evidence. And it's called the reference class problem. So you, you don't know how to, in which class you have to put your patient. So it has been suggested that, you know, in order to, to solve that problem, you need to open to other type of evidence, for instance, evidence of mechanism. You have to try to understand how things work. And once you have understood, you know, as Saul's evidence is very telling, like once you have understood why the intervention has worked, then you can understand whether it's relevant for your uh, case, for your patient. So in the paper you make, or you distinguish between two types of prediction, you've got predictions around outcome or effectiveness. And the second, the second type of prediction was around safety or adverse events. And so maybe if we start by just exploring those different forms of prediction and why they're different in relation to mechanistic thinking or reasoning. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make, just to motivate why we need to make a distinction in the first place. Please, yeah. This is because, uh, you know, evidence of mechanism has all these advantages that we have listed, but it also has some weaknesses. I mean, there are some reasons that the evidence of mechanism is ranked so low in the evidence-based medicine internal validity ranking. And this is that, for instance, you cannot rely, one, one uh, weakness is that you, you're never sure 
how much you know that uh, mechanism. Because, you know, at any time, your knowledge can be incomplete. So it can happen that you think you know how things work now, and then in one year, in one year you discover something new. And then, you know, then this, uh, you're never sure because uh, mechanisms are very complex. And uh, as high as you go in the level, so the more complex, the higher you go in the level of complexity, of course, the worse. So what we see, what we try to do is to make a more granular analysis. So we think, yes, there is this weakness, but it is not necessarily applicable to absolutely all the scenarios. Sometimes this weakness might be acceptable, might be something we live with. So we have to look more in detail at what actually kind of questions do we have to answer in the clinics. So that's why we made a distinction. We said, okay, there are two types of predictions. You have to predict efficacy and safety. Uh, so when you predict efficacy, you make predictions about something that is a very specific effect, you know, or, or few one or two, like, is there something you want to know? Well, will it work? Be, uh, you want something like, will it make it, uh, will it cure your pain? But when you think about safety, well, in that case, you might be worried about sometimes about one specific side effect, but in general, safety includes a lot of outcomes that are untargeted and uh, most often uh, there might be a lot of unknown outcomes. So there are many and not all are known. So there is this big difference. So I'm just going to use a really simple example and it may not work, but let's just, something we're all familiar with. It's like an ice pack. You sprained an ankle, right? So you're with a patient and they come in, they've got a sprained ankle. An intervention that you could suggest is an ice pack, for example. So me making a prediction about efficacy then, where's the mechanistic thinking what am I thinking about, both in terms of whether or not I should suggest this thing, this ice pack, and whether or not there'll be frostbite and the ankle's going to fall off? What? So if you can ground that in the ice pack example, that'd be helpful. Yes, exactly. So then I'm thinking, okay, I've got uh, something to obtain. You know, there's this uh, person with problem at the ankle, so he doesn't have, for instance, I might say, I want to stop the swelling. Okay. That might be your main outcome you want. And then if you think about the ice pack, then you have to think, okay, will this work? Will this stop the swelling? So do I have uh, previous evidence? evidence from other, it could be like evidence from studies, or did I use it before with other times in my life? Could be also evidence from previous uh, cases. Did it stop the swelling before? And if I have evidence that it did stop the swelling, that would be evidence from, you know, epidemiological evidence. Then do I have evidence about how it did stop the swelling? Does it exist? Some evidence about how does this work that it stops the swelling? So for instance, it reduces the amount of blood uh, circulation. And so it reduces the amount of liquid that it goes out from the, the vessels. But when I think about, uh, this is a one specific thing, then there are a number of things that could happen, right? Now, in this case, for instance, it could be uh, if uh, the patient, uh, I could be particularly worried if the patient uh, is has very delicate skin, maybe it's a baby, maybe it's a very, very old person. And then I could I could hurt the patient if I if I put the eyes too long, for instance. This is one specific, okay? But it's not only this. I mean there are many other things that could happen. And I cannot know everything that can happen because everything I do, everything you you do has a lot of consequences. So I, I cannot think that I have control of what I do, an intervention I take, and anything that could happen. So, anything to add? Uh, yes. As, as, as Elena just said, there is actually a, a relevant difference regarding the, the kind of effects in which we are interested. When we are thinking about producing a target effect, 
usually we are considering one or two effects as in the example of ice. And also it is a specific effect. When we are doing an intervention, we don't just want to increase, for instance, a parameter. We want to increase it in, in a specific sense, not too much, not too little, you know. But with side effects, this is different because we are considering many effects. We don't know most of them and they are not very specific. I mean, you don't want to increase blood pressure a lot and a lot is not good, but too much is also bad and very too much is also bad. So there are differences and we think that it is important to think about both kinds of predictions separately. I'm just trying to get my head around clinical reasoning, around efficacy. That's making some kind of judgment decision about what intervention or interventions are going to be effective for that individual. That's what we mean, right? Yes. For making a decision we're interested in, which intervention will produce the target effect and also which intervention will not produce undesired uh, side effects. So if you want, we can start talking about efficacy. And Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So as, as Elena said, our aim is to provide a granular uh, view of the role of evidence of mechanisms. So we make a distinction between predictions about efficacy and predictions about side effect. And within predictions about efficacy, we also consider that evidence of mechanisms can play both a confirming and a disconfirming role. And that it is important to think about them separately again. In the confirming scenario, the relevant mechanisms at work in the study population or the previous patients and the patient are highly similar in the relevant aspects. So we conclude that the intervention will produce the target effect in the patient because it was uh, successful, efficient in the entire population, in the study population. However, in the disconfirming scenario, the relevant mechanisms at work in the study population and the patient differ in relevant aspects. Relevant means that has an influence in the considered output. So we conclude that the intervention will not produce the target effect in the patient. What we, can, we claim in, in the paper is that the, the problems of the difficulties faced by evidence of mechanisms are not as relevant in both scenarios. They are very relevant in the confirming scenario. So evidence of mechanisms is not very reliable in that case. We need complementary evidence. For instance, consider the limited knowledge about the relevant mechanisms. Remember that mechanisms are just entities and activities. The problem is that in most cases, when we identify a mechanism, we only know some of the entities and some of the activities. So it is very difficult to say if two mechanisms are highly similar because we only know part of the mechanisms. Nonetheless, those problems are less relevant in the disconfirming scenario. So the mechanisms that work in the study population and in the patient are different in relevant aspects it may be enough for saying that the evidence in the study population is not reliable enough for concluding the efficacy of the intervention for the patient. And our point is that the problems are not so relevant in that case. Consider again the limited knowledge. Of course, it is the case that we don't know most of the entities or some of the entities, but in the disconfirming scenario, we are just saying that there is at least one relevant difference. So maybe we only know some of the entities in both cases, but if there is a huge difference between those entities, this may be enough. Remember the case about the Bangladesh example. Even if we only know some of the aspects of the social mechanisms, in that case, the role of mothers in both families, it may be enough for knowing that there is a huge difference. Maybe we don't know a lot about the relationship between brothers and sisters in those populations, but even in that case, we can identify a relevant difference. And in terms of predictions about safety, is it the same? Is it the same process? Does the same sort of reasoning apply? Mm, no. 
Actually, what we found out is that uh, according to our, mo to our model, when we make this difference, so when we distinguish the confirming and disconfirming scenario, we see that there actually is a major difference between efficacy and safety. And this is because when you think about safety, you're thinking about, you know, a lot of possible untargeted effects and even things that you don't know about. So I will explain it through an example. So imagine the following. You know that a type of exercise helps strengthening upper legs. So for instance, you want to strengthen uh, the muscles in the upper legs and uh, you know that squats, for instance, so bending up and down helps strengthening upper legs because uh, uh, let's say that there is a body of evidence that there is a large study showing that statistically it helps. Okay. In the same study, you also see that the same type of exercise, it provoked knee pain in a subpopulation that had a certain knee problem. Let's say there was a subpopulation in the study that had a problem at the knee cartilage. And so this population got knee problem. And then you also have an understanding. So the study only gives you this, the fact, as we say. Then you also have uh, from your uh, theoretical knowledge and from the previous evidence that, that you can find, both in your studies and, uh, you know, in the literature, you also have an understanding of the mechanism beside the side effect, which might be that, you know, you, you've got uh, a lot of stress at the knee and then uh, since you don't have enough uh, protection, the cartilage, so, uh, you know, you get this uh, inflammation and, uh, you know, knee pain. Okay, so you have the me mechanistic evidence and you have the study. Now, I want to use this evidence study mechanism to understand whether squats are safe for my patient. Okay, can I say, can, can I uh, suggest to my patient, okay, I think you might do that and, and I think we could be quite safe that, that this is a good exercise for you. You won't have side effects. Okay, let's, let's look at a disconfirming scenario. So in my patient, there is no evidence of that particular knee defects, okay? disconfirming. So there, there is no relevant uh, uh, mechanism, uh, something that tells me that the, the similar mechanism is at place with that population that had the problem. So can I conclude the squats are safe? Well, not really. There might be other mechanisms to provoke knee pain. Okay. There might be other side effects, other mechanisms at place in the patient. So I only know about some entities. I only know about some processes, just one. But I mean, what about all the other entities of processes? So this scenario wasn't that good. So let's look at the confirming scenario instead. So in this case, I have evidence that my patient has the same mechanism at place. Let's say that the patient has uh, the same knee defect or at least a predisposition. I can see, I can see in the imaging, I take some imaging and I say, oh, I mean, I see that you have a certain predisposition. You might, uh, you know, be losing your uh, cartilage. You might might uh, be predisposed to inflammation, etc. So this, although I only know this particular entity, this particular process, this is sufficient evidence to conclude that the patient will probably have the same side effects. So maybe not at the same intensity. Uh, you know, there might be some other mechanism at place that I don't know about to counteract the disposition. So, for instance, the patient might have very strong knee, very, very strong muscles at the knee. So I can say, okay, I mean, you might not get so much pain, but still you are at risk of getting the pain. I mean, I don't know how, how intensive we'll get it, but still, you know, and there, there might, might be more mechanisms at place for other side effects, but at least Although I don't know everything, I don't know all the entities and processes at place. I know about this one, and this is enough to say that this is not a safe thing. And then, of course, this is not the only thing. We're not saying that this is the only thing. So, for instance, my patient could tell me, okay, you know, I want to take the risk because for me, it's very important to strengthen my upper legs. Okay, 
these are other things that are at place in the clinical choice because we're not in any way saying that this type of evidence is the only thing. We also have to consider the patient's preferences, what the patient cares about. Maybe he doesn't care about getting knee pain. I mean, but you know, when we want to when we want to think about the type of evidence that we provide to the patient and say, okay, this is what we know from you know what research shows, then we, we can say in the, the this confirming scenario is best in the case of safety. But we don't we don't trust very much at this confirming. We cannot say, oh okay, you know. You don't have any mechanism that plays here that they've seen the studies, so this is safe for you. I mean, this is not really great to to say. So I, I, ju- I just have a, a question, I think, tied to that, but also about the, the value of evidence and mechanism. So, so thinking about the person with knee pain, right, and you said that in a subpopulation, there was a group that had some some issue with the cartilage and they experience knee pain, let's say. But it could be the case that people still experience knee pain that don't have the cartilage. I'm trying to link this back to something you said earlier. There's a reason why we don't ask patients about what shoes they wear in relation to, I can't remember the the, the, the example, but I suppose it comes to kind of plausibility. So, So the mechanism has to be plausible for it to be useful. And the plausibility rests on the uh, the logical coherence of that theory or, or mechanism. So, for example, and let me uh, you can help me I'm trying to think of a good example here. But but so if I've got a patient in front of me and they've got back pain, for example, I can't think of a plausible mechanism how their favourite colour explains a their development of back pain but also any potential safety or efficacy outcome in relation to my treatment but i could probably invent a mechanism i mean there was i could probably use words to describe some mechanism but it would be nonsensical and not plausible so what am i trying to say here no, I mean, you're, talk, you're talking about the question of plausibility. Saul, do you want to say something about that, about the fact that we're talking about some evidence? I mean, Well, the, the only thing that I would like to, to say, uh, what Oliver is saying is actually a, a, a critic that some people is saying. Also, it's so easy to come up with a, with a mechanism. So having a mechanism that links A and B is not a lot. Well, as, as far as I'm concerned, one of the points here is that also the quality of evidence of mechanisms is relevant. Of course, you can come up with many correlations that you will yeah, consider yeah. irrelevant. So with evidence of mechanisms is, is the same. We, we, of course, do not have as enough space for addressing this, this topic in our paper, but we believe that if evidence of mechanisms has to play a role in the clinical practice, we cannot just take evidence of mechanisms. We have to evaluate and analyze evidence of mechanism in order to integrate it in the in the framework. Yes, because uh, as you say, Oliver. Yes, you can. You know, you can say, okay, I can think about a mechanism here, and it's plausible. But you know, obviously, you can think about anything if you have a lot of fantasy. You can you can think about a lot of things. But here we're talking about: is there any evidence? So we're still talking about uh, going into the literature and see and evidence of mechanism could be unlike epidemiological evidence you can have a broad range of evidence that can uh, point to a mechanism so you, you could have mechanisms from uh, you know case for instance single cases can uh, or uh, patient narratives can point to mechanisms detailed rich narratives can point to mechanisms. You can have evidence from, you know, imaging. You can have focus group because, you know, here we are ranging from thinking about medicines to thinking about social intervention, etc. So evidence of mechanisms can be of many types. But of course, you know, the more you have, the better. And you can also make an evaluation of what do I think? Is this a good evidence? Is there some evidence of this plausible mechanism? Is it plausible? 
And is it plausible means, do I have some theoretical knowledge? Do I have some good evidence that this could be at play? So, so when there's no good reason to think that something might have an effect or be unsafe, tacitly I'm, I'm thinking about mechanism. There's no reason to believe or there's no mechanism that I can think of as to why someone's favourite colour might be influential and whether or not they recover or respond to a particular intervention. If that's the case, how does evidence and mechanism help us make some judgments about useful treatments or ineffective treatments? So, so actually what I think what we are addressing now is uh, related with testing the efficacy of interventions. I mean, in, in, the, in the study, more than the extrapolation, let's say, of the results to the individual patient. But it is nonetheless a very interesting topic. So let me say a, a couple of things. So evidence of mechanisms also in when we are testing the efficacy of, of an intervention can play both a confirming and a disconfirming role. So let's say that we identify a correlation between an intervention and an output in the study population or in a patient that we are treating. Of course, correlation does not imply causation. So there are different interpretations and explanation of this correlation. If we are able to identify a mechanism through which the intervention produces the, the output, it supports the causal conclusion. Nonetheless, is if, as you said, we are not able to come up with a mechanism, it undermines the causal conclusion. So, you know, we identify a correlation between, I don't know, an atmospheric uh, event and what's uh, on the color of my food today. <laughs> so if I'm not able to come up with a mechanism, it undermines the, the, the causal conclusion. And so things are becoming more or less implausible as we generate knowledge, as, as Eleanor was saying, that it's something which just seems ridiculous now or implausible or we can't think of a mechanism to explain, it's possible that we we find new stuff out and it's suddenly we begin to identify possible causal links which we didn't know before? Actually, this is the position of some authors. Some of the authors that have been discussing the role of evidence of mechanism for establishing causal claims, they say that the confirming role, let's say that we identify the mechanism is more uh, useful than the disconfirming role. And one of the reasons is just that uh, maybe we can come up always with a mechanism, mm -hmm. more or less plausible, etc. So even in, in that uh, discussion, in establishing causal claims, there is also a difference between the reliability of evidence of mechanisms. And also, Oliver, that's right what you say, because this is one of the um, criticism. This is one of the reasons why evidence of mechanisms is not taken in so much consideration in, in the evidence-based medicine paradigm, and which is that, you know, there's been a lot of evidence that has been produced in the years, and it has not been taken into account because we didn't have a good idea, a plausible idea of that it would make sense. Uh, for instance, uh, there is a famous example of Samuel Weiss, the Hungarian doctor, who in 18th century, no, 17th century, sorry, before we had any theory of germs. So we didn't know how illness was uh, transmitted, that there were some germs. He had observed that when you washed, when doctors washed their hands before attending to women who were giving birth, when doctors washed their hands, there was less incidence of puerperial fever. So less women got infection just because, seemed to be because doctors washed hands. There was a correlation. And then he suggested, you know, we should all start washing hands. And that was like uh, taken as uh, ridiculous because there was no plausible understanding of what on earth does this have to do with anything? 
that was because we didn't have an idea that disease was something that you transmit. Disease was not some, thought as something transmittable. It was a property of someone. So, and then the, the idea is that, and the criticism of taking into consideration mechanism is, well, I mean, you cannot think like that. You, you cannot rely on your understanding. Because I mean, then you you will not take you will not pay attention to important evidence just because you don't understand it. But on the other hand, we also have the point that we made in the beginning that is, if you want to 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 look at the relevance of the evidence for a single patient, then you have to rely on something. So the understanding is very important. Otherwise, you're just left with internal validity. So with reliability, you don't have anything about the relevance. So you have to rely on some statistics to make decisions about your patient. That's a problem. So it, just because of that, we thought, no, but it's possible that we can still use evidence of mechanism, although it has these problems, it can be used in some cases. And then we found out, well, actually we can rely on evidence of mechanism for discarding inadequate interventions, that's quite okay. I mean, you know, when we want to identify suitable interventions, then, you know, you have to be a little bit more uh, careful. Uh, You cannot just say, oh, it's because I know the mechanism. But when it's it's about discarding uh, intervention that will uh, be unsafe, then it's quite okay to, to use evidence of mechanism. Uh, and so maybe now you've got a, a good example around COVID, and I'm guessing that given the speed at which interventions had to be utilised to, to treat and to manage COVID and all that stuff, that interventions were being used without necessarily well-established evidence of a mechanism or potentially not even good evidence for outcome, but things were just being tried Either there, either there was a reasonable mechanism, but no empirical data says this thing is effective, or there was no mechanism. It just seems to work in the wards. And I'm thinking about positioning of patients and prone or supine. That necessarily there was the mechanism perhaps came later. So perhaps you can explore those case examples of where mechanistic knowledge came in. Or yes, so of course in the issues of the world, you always have uncertainties. And you don't only have uncertainty, but you have stakes. So what are your stakes? So sometimes you have just to do something, you know, given the evidence you have, you just have to take a decision, although you, you are very insecure, but I mean, the stakes are high and something has to be done. So you just try something. And that was the case of uh, the early COVID-19 when so many patients were coming to uh, to emergency with uh, this uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome they couldn't they couldn't breathe so what could you do to 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 help that patients so one thing that was done was positioning the patients prone so like on their bellies and that was based both on observation you know of some population and on uh, mechanistic thinking. It's because, you know, we knew or they knew that when you have patients that are sedated, that are sleeping and they use a ventilator, it it helps most sometimes. I mean, it's still something that you have to look patient by patient, but it's something that is that is used to people do to put position the patient on their belly. So the thinking is that maybe it will help also with these patients who are not ventilated, but still have this respiratory distress syndrome, so cannot sleep. And the thinking is that it might help because there is a common mechanism because both patients have problems breathing. And when they are laying on their back, the lungs are pressed, they're compressed by the other organ organs. They're compressed by the heart, by the intestine, etc. So the, the gas exchange is impaired because the lungs are collapsed. And that's, that results in lower oxygen levels. 
And instead, in the prone position, there is less lung compression. So in this case, we have the confirming scenario of efficacy. The one that we said you have to take with a grain of salt because uh, it doesn't necessarily tell you much because you don't, you, you just know some parts of the mechanism. You cannot rely so much on that. Obviously, in that specific case, you have to do something. So I personally think it was good to do that because that's the evidence there was. And I mean, you know, either that or, you know, losing the patients, of course you have to try. But what we know now after, you know, this was tested uh, with further evidence and we know that actually this doesn't seem to work very well. So this is a bit of a confirmation that we are right. So we believe that you might be lucky that might take it right, but it is a poor type of evidence that you have because, uh, you know, you, you see just the parts of the mechanism are the same, are similar, but you cannot be uh, safe. On the other hand, when you see that some parts of this, the mechanism are not similar, then it's a safer, uh, uh, safer base you have because it doesn't matter all the rest. You see that they're not similar, so you can... You can make your statement. I see that the, the mechanisms, you know, are not similar. I don't care about all the other entities, all the other processes, but these specific ones are different. And in the case of safety is the contrary. So when I want to discard something that, an intervention that, that is not suitable, and I have evidence from studies and evidence of mechanism is exactly the contrary, for instance. And this, I'm taking a, an example with the, with the medicine, okay, an example from my field. So medicines for erectile dysfunctions like Viagra, I mean, they are very used, 20 million people, I think, use, use them. And there is, they have been correlated with loss of vision, disturbance of, of vision. And this has been shown in population studies. There are so called studies that show a correlation between this type of drugs and some uh, condition of the retina. So it seems that there is not enough blood that goes to the optic nerve in the eye. Okay, and if this happens, then you can have a sudden loss of vision. And this is this is, happens very rarely. Then there is also a plausible mechanism, and there is evidence from that mechanism, because uh, that type of erectile dysfunction drugs they lower blood, blood pressure, and blood pressure lowers is physiologically lower in the evening, in the night, and it's often that these type of drugs are taken in the evening, right? So then, when you take Viagra, for instance, in the evening, it further lowers the blood pressure. So it's possible that this hypotension triggers inadequate blood flow in the optic nerve, and then you have that sudden loss of vision. Okay, so now if you have your patient, okay, you have a patient who is coming to you to, for example, the, the pharmacy, if you're a pharmacist and is uh, worried, like, okay, I've uh, read this, I've heard this, uh, it's a very rare side effect, but I mean, should I still take, you know, my Viagra or not? Well, I mean, if you if you know or if you you know have uh, information from your patient, and there's evidence of predisposition. For instance, the patient has hypotension. He has been to to an ophthalmic inspection, and he has low intraocular intraocular pressure, like inside the eye. So you know, then you have it's enough. This evidence of mechanism is enough to consider that the patient is a risk. You have this mechanism, so I mean, you are actually at risk of this particular problem. So then, you know, still it still depends whether the patient takes it or not, because in the end, it's a patient's choice. But I mean, you could discourage, or you could say, okay, maybe you should monitor it very closely. You should uh, immediately stop if you start to see a bit worse, etc. I'm looking at the time and uh, I think we've gone through most things, but I wonder if there's a, a kind of snazzy way to, to finish up and whether, whether you have any take home messages or what would you encourage clinicians to think about in relation to evidence for mechanisms? What, what take home messages or words of wisdom might you have? The thing that, that, that I would say is that 
even when you have internal validity, even when you have that intervention was successful in the study population or in previous patients, when you are in the clinical practice, you want to know if this intervention is good for your for this particular patient. And for that kind of inference, it is crucial to consider the similarities between this particular patient and the previous ones and the study population. And we consider that one aspect that you have to take into account for this comparison is evidence of mechanism. If you consider the mechanisms at work in this particular patient and the study population or previous patients, that can be useful for you, a useful tool, a, a place to, to look at. Of course, we are aware, and this is our starting point, evidence of mechanisms is not perfect. It is not a new gold standard. But if we take into account the weaknesses of evidence of mechanisms, we are able to see when it can be useful and we are able to use them as our take-home message is evidence of, mechanis of mechanisms can be useful particularly for identifying inadequate treatments. If the mechanisms at work in the study population and the patient are very different, that the study population is not useful for your case. And if you identify a problematic mechanism in the study population and it is also present in your patient, maybe you have to consider again this intervention and maybe look for alternatives. Elena, Saul, thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver. It was super nice to talk with you about our paper and be illuminating even for us, I think. Yes, thank you very much, Oliver, for this chat. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.